0: Lord, I thank You for Your Word poured through Your servant Mark. And I thank You that You chose to do it the way You did. I, I thank You as saw fit not just to give us the Gospel through one writer, but, but four perspectives according to Mark and, and to Matthew and to Luke and to John and that according to these different guys and these different witnesses and the different accounts all coming together to form this amazing picture of Jesus and to give us all that we need to know As you tell us, your Word does for life and for godliness. I thank you for this Gospel, and I pray that you would write your words on our hearts, that this would not just be something left to a book that we carry around, but in our spirits that we carry with us constantly wherever we go. Father, bless the teaching of your Word tonight. Help us to see truth here, to have understanding, and Lord, again, to apply the things that we hear. By the power of your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint Him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you." And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And some believe Mark ended his account of the Gospel right there. That you go through those first eight verses of chapter 16 and it ends. It ends abruptly. It ends suddenly. But you know what? That's kind of the way Mark has written his Gospel, isn't it? Abruptly. Suddenly. Quickly. Quickly. Moving from one thing to the next, we are already on the end, or at the end of this gospel study. Amazing, it went by incredibly quickly. And so Mark kind of writes this way anyway, with abruptness. This ending, if it does end after verse 8, is consistent with Mark's style. Bible Knowledge Commentary says it punctuates Mark's development of the themes of fear and astonishment throughout his gospel. The reader is left to ponder with awe the meaning of the empty tomb as interpreted by the angel's revelatory message. But is this the end? Did it stop here? Did Mark put down the pen once he got to this final sentence, if it were final, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid? What about the additional 12 verses? that happen to be in my Bible, hopefully they're in yours. What about that little italicized and bracketed final verse that in the New American Standard Bible is placed after verse 20? What about that? Well, let's dispense with that one real quickly. This is called the shorter ending, that final verse. If you have it even listed, some Bibles don't even have it listed at all. Others, again, in italics and bracketed. And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Now originally, that verse came after verse 8, which is why it's called the shorter ending, because in manuscripts that had just eight verses and then nothing else, this verse seemed kind of a a conclusive verse. it's biblical, it's doctrinally sound, but it was probably added later. Probably not inspired, God-breathed, rather man-written. How, well, How do we know that? Well, it didn't even show up in any Greek manuscripts or even in extra-biblical writings until the 7th century. wasn't a part of it until late in the game. And, and that being the case, most scholars, and I would agree, think it's probably not... Original. Is it good? Sure. Are the words uh, a blessing to read? Absolutely. Are they right? Yes, they are. Are they inspired? Probably not. So I leave them italicized and bracketed and kind of set off to the side. You can do with it as you please. But what about verses 9 through 20? Because as you'll see tonight in verses 9 through 20, there is some serious doctrine here there is some very specific teaching. These are what Chuck Smith, among others, calls real power verses in the Bible. Do these belong here? Should they be here? And why is there any uncertainty about them at all? Well, some translations add footnotes. Perhaps you have a footnote in your Bible that says something like, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20, implying the early manuscripts don't. Or here's a good one, I believe this is out of the NIV translation. The most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have Mark sixteen, verses nine through twenty. You know, can I just gently warn against footnotes in your Bibles? Don't assume that because it happens to be on the same page with the inspired Word of God that it's inspired. Footnotes are simply that, human footnotes to try and give some explanation as to the nature of things, to try and give a little bit of help. I'll tell you what, what I like in my Bible, I love the cross-references. I love the extra verses there that can help me go from place to place. What I don't like are Bibles that are full of commentary. And the reason is we tend to find ourselves bent to the commentary rather than to the Word of God. So be careful with little footnotes, because the footnotes can be confusing, the footnotes can be misleading. The phrase early manuscripts, what are they talking about when when they say later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20, or the most reliable early manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20? What exactly are they talking about there? The phrase early manuscripts refers to two, two manuscripts. And these two manuscripts are the only unseal copies. Unseal is like a... You, you would see that on a listing of fonts. Okay, Unseal is just a pattern of writing. It's a, it's a script style. It's not exactly handwriting. It's not exactly printing. It's somewhere in between. It's a way of writing. So if you hear the word unseal or an unseal document, we have two unsealed documents. That is, they are handwritten copies of the Greek New Testament in full. So Matthew through Revelation... We have two copies in full, in existence right now. They're the two oldest, and they don't contain these last 12 verses, verses 9 through 20. Hence the controversy. These two documents are the Codex Vaticanus. I know you were dying to hear about that, and you're taking copious notes on this. The Codex Vaticanus, which is a copy that dates approximately back to 350 A.D., The second one is the Codex Sinaiticus, which is a second copy that dates around 360 A.D. Okay, so both of these two early manuscripts that don't have verses 9 through 20 date back to the mid-300s. That's what you really need to understand there. What the margins don't tell you is that these two copies, first of all, are both produced in the same, what they call a scriptorium, or the same location, basically. They were both copied in the same place. And probably by the same scribe, the same copyist, because of the unsealed style. It looks very similar as if written by the same hand. So it's entirely likely that with 10 or 20 years between the two, these two early documents were written by the same guy in the same place. So they're really not two early independent witnesses. They're really just one. So we have one early copy that's a full copy that doesn't include verses 9 through 20. So, should they be there? Well, personally, I'm convinced these 12 verses are God breathed, inspired, original scripture. Why? A couple of reasons. Number one, because of the agreement of the extra biblical evidence. The agreement of the extra biblical evidence. That is evidence outside the Bible that tells us these verses were present even though we don't see them in these two copies in the mid-300s. I don't mean to bore you with this stuff, but it's important we we understand it before we get into the study of it. You see, while the two manuscripts from the mid-4th century century lack verses 9 through 20, there are early extra-biblical witnesses who testify to these verses, either by quoting the verses themselves or by writing about them in their own commentaries. And I'm going to give you four quick names. Hippolytus, Hippolytus, he wrote a work called Pericharismaton, and again you don't have to write this down or you can email me and I'll shoot you a copy of this, but Hippolytus wrote Pericharismaton, and in it he quoted Mark 16 verses 18 and 19, clearly part of the last 12 verses. He wrote his work sometime between 190 and 227 AD, which means he quoted from these verses Long before the two unsealed documents don't have these verses. What does that tell you? That the verses were present. That they were there. Irenaeus. Irenaeus was an early church father. He's one I've talked about before. He said some amazing things. He has a work called Against Heresies that he wrote in 180 AD. 180. And he quoted and remarked on Mark 16 verse 13. So Irenaeus was aware of these verses quoted them as Scripture and made remarks about them. Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is another early church father. In his first Apology, the work entitled The Apology, he quoted Mark 16, verse 20. And he wrote that in 151 A.D. We're getting earlier here. And the earliest evidence that we have that these verses are legitimate, extra-biblically speaking, is from a guy named Papias... And that's significant. Why? Because Papias was a disciple of the Apostle John. Papias knew John. Papias wrote in 100 A.D. referring to Mark 16, verse 18. So as early as 100 A.D., Papias, a disciple of John, refers to a verse out of these last nine verses. That's pretty compelling. Extra-biblical, and yet... Compelling, But I also believe these verses to be God-breathed because of the amazing intra-biblical evidence. That is the Word of God providing its own evidence for the reason these verses should be here. The witness of these words parallels and jives very well with the rest of Scripture. You don't find anything in these 12 verses that seems a little off or perhaps a little out there either from what the rest of Scripture teaches or from the examples we find in the rest of Scripture, and you'll see that tonight as well. The appearances of Jesus after His resurrection, talked about in the last 12 verses, jive with the other Gospels perfectly. The Great Commission is spoken in these last 12 verses, just as spoken in the other Gospels and the book of Acts. The things talked about or pointed to in these last 12 verses, we see taking place, in the book of Acts and in the early church. So it's very consistent with the rest of Scripture. And just to freak you out a little bit, there was a man who lived from 1850 to 1942. You may have heard his name. It's Dr. Ivan Panin. Some of you Bible students may have heard of Ivan Panin. Ivan Panin dedicated 50 years of his life to the study of biblical numerics. Now let me caution you. Numerics can be a tricky thing. There are Bible code books out there. Don't just grab a book that says Bible codes and assume that it's legitimate. But there is some legitimacy to numerical evidence in the Bible. What do you mean, Rick? The Hebrew language and the Greek language both use the letters also as numbers. You know, in the Greek, you've got the omega, which is the... the, the, big number, the alpha the beginning, in the Hebrew, their letters were also numbers as well. So if you take the numerical value of those numbers, of those letters, in the writing, some things begin to emerge. And that's the study of of numerics. And we talked about when we studied Matthew, in the uh, genealogy of Jesus, how amazingly it breaks down into so many different sevens. Sevens throughout the genealogy of Jesus in a way that no man could have possibly worked that out in a stunning and a divine way. We see the same thing in verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16. The same thing. What Ivan Panin discovered applying numbers to letters, he discovered 75 combinations of the number seven in verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16. 75 combinations. Not to mention the fact that if you look in the original Greek, there are 175 words in the last 12 verses. 175 divides equally by 7 25 times. And he went through and he began to see there's this, there's this consistency of the, of, the, of the biblical numerics here and to make it more understandable here, Chuck Missler in his in his book Hidden Treasures wrote the following. One million supercomputers composing 400 million drafts per second would require four million years just to map out 34 of these sevens. Okay? And Panin discovered 75. There is something to this. Wow, Rick, you could do that with any book, right? I mean, grab, I don't know, Homer's Iliad. Grab the Iliad, and I'm sure you would find numerical uh, consistency because you know in, in the Greek lettering of that you could find you don't find it anywhere in Homer's Iliad. There's nothing like that there. You go outside of Scripture, and it's it's piecemeal. God does things to prove and to legitimize His Word, and some of it God doesn't even do to prove His Word. He just it just happens because He's God. And when you inspire a word and you happen to be God, that word is going to be beyond human comprehension. It's going to be an amazing thing. And there are, as Missler called it, hidden treasures within the word itself. So, I think the last 12 verses are pretty darn legitimate. You can quote me on that. You may not want to use the word darn, but you can quote me on that. But it's not the end of Mark that concerns us, is it? When it all comes down as Mark himself wrote in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 it is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God and the end of marking is only the beginning of the gospel. Let's look at verse 1. When the sabbath was over Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that's not salamian spices. <laughs> Clarify. So they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And I love this. Here they are again. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, and Salome. We have seen them multiple times here in the closing chapters of the Gospel according to Mark. And here they are again at the earliest possible opportunity. Because we had, first of all, Passover running into Shabbat, the Sabbath day. They couldn't do any of this work based on Jewish law. The soonest they could do it, sun up Sunday morning, well, guess where they were? Heading to the tomb. As soon as they could go, these most devoted followers of Jesus came to anoint Jesus' body. Now, it wasn't Jewish custom to mummify their bodies, but they would anoint them because the body began to smell. And they would put the anointing uh, spices on them just to keep the body from smelling. It was a lovely thing they did. It was a beautiful thing. It was a devoted thing. These three women absolutely loved Jesus. And, And so they're the first ones here Sunday morning. No wonder they'd be the first to be told that He wasn't there. No wonder they would be the first to believe That Jesus had in fact resurrected. No wonder they'd be the first to behold Jesus. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was the first one to see Jesus. Alive after the resurrection. No wonder these women would be the first ones to tell. The first evangelists. The first missionaries. The first ones to carry the message of the gospel from one place to another. It's these three women. But let me tell you, it wasn't faith that led them to the tomb that morning. It was love. Faith would have meant they went there expecting to see Jesus alive. They didn't. They went there expecting the stone to be in front of the tomb, not sure how they were going to get in. It was love that led them there. And that's perfect because love fires faith. Love compels conviction. It's not the other way around. I'll tell you, if you come to Jesus, faith first and love second. What ends up happening is faith can start to turn into this religious thing. Faith, Not, and I'm not downing faith, but the Bible says faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because love drives faith, and love drives hope. It's because of love that the three women went to the tomb at all. They just loved Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 5, for we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith. Listen, faith working through love. That's the key. Faith working through love. If you have a faith that works through love, if your faith is based on the love you have for Jesus, then your faith is not going to become a dry, religious, legalistic thing. If your faith is all that drives you, you can do without the love part, well, that worship stuff, I don't need that. Just take me to the Word. You know, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. You're missing the whole point. And the whole point is love. It is a love relationship God calls us to. And even our faith, Paul says, is to be working through love. So they didn't come faithfully expecting to find an empty tomb. They came lovingly intending to anoint Jesus. The last thing they knew was the stone was rolled shut. Mark 15, verses 46 and 47, just above, indicates that they watched as Joseph of Arimathea did this. It says Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. So they watched this take place. They're there. These... Wonderful ladies. Matthew 27 verses 65 and 66 tells us that Pilate authorized a Roman guard to go seal and secure the tomb because the Jewish leaders were afraid his disciples would come steal the body. And in fact, that would be the lie that they propagated that has continued to this day, by the way. There are still people who say, oh, the disciples stole the body. Okay, to do so, they would have to overcome a sealed, secured tomb guarded by four to sixteen Roman soldiers in full dress. Probably didn't happen. <laughs> Couldn't have happened. And Mark 16, verse 3 tells us, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? They're headed to the tomb. Picture this. How are we going to deal with this insurmountable problem? What are we going to use to roll back this weight? Why? Why must this weight be so heavy? And those are all the wrong questions. I don't know if you caught that. How will I? What will I? Why must I? And the women weren't asking those questions. What did they ask? Who? It's always the right question with Jesus. Who will roll away the stone? Who's going to move it for us? Who? Because it's a who that makes the insurmountable surmountable. It is a who that makes the impossible possible. So the right question, and the question these three ladies are asking is, who's going to help us? Who's going to do this? The right answer is always Jesus. He is the who. It's not Roger Daltrey or Pete Townsend after all. (laughs) Jesus is the answer and the right question is who. And remember that, gang, because oftentimes in my life I'm asking, how am I going to make this work? And when I go to the how of the question, I'm on my own. When I ask the question, what am I going to do about this? The emphasis is all on me. When I throw out the question, why must... Now I'm into self-pity mode. Why is always self-pitying? Why is my life so hard as opposed to Who's going to help me here? The who is Jesus. Matthew 28 verse 2 tells us, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And the Lord may send you an angel to roll back the barrier. You may not see Him. You may not even know He's there. The Bible tells us we are often visited by angels unaware. We don't even know what they're busy doing. But they're busy. And they are doing. And God may send an angel to do it for you. He may send a brother or a sister in Christ. By the way, (laughs) when you're trying to figure out what to do with a certain situation in your life, and you have brothers and sisters in Jesus coming to you and they're offering advice, and that advice tends to be the same from everybody that's coming to you, perhaps you ought to test that before the Lord. Because one of the ways God speaks to us is through each other. Now, not always. Don't, don't take you know anyone's... You know, Spencer comes to me and says, Rick, I really think we should do this. I don't just go, Well, Spencer said it. <laughs> Got to do it. Thank the Lord for that. Yes. What I do say is I'll test that, Spence. I'll pray about that. Lord, is the advice that Spencer brought to me, is that of you? Is what Jim shared with me the other night, is, is this your will, Father? Because oftentimes He will talk to us through brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of what our fellowship is for. okay? To encourage each other in the Lord. Sometimes He may alter the circumstances completely. God may affect the natural world. He may push back the enemy. But He is the answer to the question, it is a who that rolls away the stone, as is the case here as the women come up looking up verse 4. They saw that the stone had been rolled away Although it was extremely large. How large was it? The Greek word for large is mega. It was a mega stone. megas in the Greek. It's where we get our word mega. It was a mega big stone. And to seal the tomb, and some of you have seen this in Israel, what they do typically in the the nicer tombs, and Joseph of Arimathea's tomb would have been very nice. Uh, Hewn out of rock, we know that, in a garden around connected to on the same hillside there as as Golgotha was. And what they would do is they would carve a groove in the ground that would be at an angle down in front of the tomb and at the bottom of the groove would be the opening to the tomb. And usually it would be a doorway large enough that you could walk through or perhaps stoop and go into. And a huge stone, flattened out, would be rolled from the top of that groove, set in the groove, and rolled down in front of the tomb and it would sit there in that groove at the base of the tomb. Rolling it closed was a whole lot easier than rolling it open. Okay? And add to that, this is a mega big stone. But by the time the women arrived, the stone had already been moved. What a marvelous picture. How often are the obstacles that I fear already moved by God before I arrive? Before I even get there, he's already dealt with it. I'm freaking out. I'm stressing. How is this going to work, Lord? I don't know how I'm going to get over this issue. It's just too heavy for me, Lord. And he's already moved it. I just don't know. I haven't arrived yet. And the women arrive, and the stone is moved. Problem solved. Well, that's... The three faithful women. What about us as believers today? I mean you can't apply the same thing can you? Isaiah sixty-five twenty-four says it will also come to pass that before they call I will answer and while they are still speaking I will hear and much of the time God has already solved the problem even before we pray for it. Problem solved what about when he doesn't he's doing something else with you He's got something else he's working out. If the stone's still there when you arrive, then he wants you to put your back into it. Or he wants you to put your knee into it and pray some more. So that in relationship he can show you that it is he who is doing it. By the way, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. Would Jesus really need the stone to be moved so He could get out of there? Listen to this. John 20, verse 19 says, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Resurrection Day, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. The doors were shut. How did Jesus get in? He just did. Which is so cool because that's a picture of us in our resurrected bodies. And I am I cannot wait for the millennial kingdom because I'm just going to show up in people's houses. <laughs> What's up? Stop that. You know? Why do you keep doing that? Jesus was not limited. The stone was not moved so Jesus could get out. The stone was moved so that witnesses could look in. So that the women could see with their own eyes. He was not there. He was gone. And you know what? The presence of those big stones, those hard times in our lives, God rolls back those stones not so He can get out of the problem, but so that we can see His hand at work. So that we can see He did it. Why does God allow these difficulties in my life? So that we can see that He is the one who removes them for us. Those things move back. They allow us to see the power of God at work resurrecting our lives. Philippians chapter two verse twelve says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who as it is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." I want to see God at work. I've seen enough of Rick at work. I've seen enough of my own success, and, and I've been successful. I have in ministry. I've shared with you before, I started ministry at a small church, a youth pastor at a small church. I went to a larger church on the East Coast. From there I got hired on to a very large church in Southern California where the youth group was roughly the size of the bridge, the entire fellowship here. I know success. And the thing about the success that I had in youth ministry and what drove Cheryl and I called really us to move up to the Northwest and leave that position in Southern California was simply this. I could not tell if it was God or if it was me at work in that ministry. I knew how to do it. I knew how to attract those teenagers. I knew how to build the ministry. I knew how to develop the staff. It was it was so much me. Or maybe it wasn't me. Maybe it really was God the whole time. But I couldn't see. And I'll tell you, the prayer that I pray often in my life now, Jesus, I just want to see You at work. I don't want to see me at work anymore. Because when I see me at work, you know what it ends up doing? It it tires me out. It wears me down. It causes my faith to wane. I start to build up myself and then I let myself down. I don't want to see me. I want to see Jesus at work. God is at work in you. Brothers and sisters, pray that prayer. Lord, let me see You at work in my life. Get me out of the way. It's not about me. It's not about what I can achieve or accomplish, even for the Lord. It's about what He is doing, and that's what I want to see. Verse five. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. The word "amazed" there—it's which can be translated terrified, but but not terrified as in fearfully. Not ah. Ekthambeto implies just astounded. Speechless. Amazed. Uh, Blown away by by what they see here. What do they see? Well, they see no Jesus. He's gone. They see a a young man in a white robe. The Greek word for robe there is stole. It's a long, stately, train-like robe sweeping the ground. The kind of robe that only a king or a priest or those in high position would wear. Obviously, Uh, an important person standing there in the tomb and Matthew tells us very specifically Mark just says it was a young man Matthew tells us no it was an angelos in the Greek it was an angel whose appearance was like lightning and I'm glad Matthew tells us that because if we just had Mark's account here that they went and they saw the young man wearing a white robe and they were amazed terrified they were ekthombeo What's terrifying about a young man in a white robe? You know, nice terry cloth. I mean, what? It, what's frightening about that? No, this was an angel whose appearance was like lightning. Matthew said, amazing. Luke tells us there were two of them, not just one angel. Mark says one and Matthew adds that looks like lightning and Luke says well no there were two and then John comes along and he describes them sitting one at the head and one at the feet of where the body of Jesus would have laid which you Bible students know is a great picture two angels one at the head one at the feet facing each other well where have you seen that? Mercy Mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant two cherubim facing each other wings touching one at the head one at the feet and that's the picture that John draws out And you might say, well, okay, but Rick, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four talk about the angels. Two of them say one angel. One says a man, one says like lightning. That's an actual angel. Luke says two, and then John says two sitting on either end. Why the disparity in the accounts? Critics of the Bible love to say, well, they're different accounts, and therefore something must be wrong here. Listen you got four different writers. You're going to have four different perspectives. And by the way, the difference in these accounts strengthen the case for the truth. They don't diminish it. They strengthen it because now you've got four different people looking at this differently. Why would one say there was one angel? Well, perhaps where Mary, the mother of Joseph, was standing, all she could see was one angel. Maybe that was the case. Maybe it was only Mary Magdalene who got in close enough to see there were two angels. But you have the different perspectives, all that surround the truth. You know the story that the picture of the blind men who are describing an elephant, right? They're all going to describe that elephant very differently. It's still the elephant, and the elephant that's in the living room of modern theology is that the differing accounts actually support the truth, support the case. Just like you would bring in witnesses to a court case. And you would call them up one at a time. And they would not all have seen the exact same thing, but they would all see pieces of the bigger picture and they would lend truth to the case. That's what's going on here. So we know by the time John comes along, yes, there were two angels. Yes, both young men dressed in white, flashing like lightning, amazing, frightening, incredible. But you know what? The bottom line issue is not the number of angels. The bottom line is, Jesus wasn't there. That's the issue. Why would the women not even know how many angels? Well, because Jesus wasn't there, and Jesus was the focus, not the angels. Verse 6, And He said to them, Do not be amazed... You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid Him. I love that. He could have been singing, I ain't got nobody. (laughs) Because He's not here. He is gone. Now note the angel calls Jesus two things that are interesting. He says, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. Not exactly a place to be proud of. Jesus the Nazarene. But you know what? Jesus redeems lowly places. He does. And the reference to Jesus the Nazarene ties in, I think, a final time to the ancient prophecy. What are you talking about? Matthew 2.21, speaking back of the birth story of Jesus, tells us that Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus, Herod's son, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. A prophecy. He'd be called a, called a Nazarene. You Bible students know where that prophecy comes from, right? He's called the branch. Isaiah chapter 11. The Nazar or, or Netzer, which is the root of the word Nazarene. He would be called a Nazarene. He was from Nazareth, and so the angel, even now talking about the resurrected Jesus, refers to him first as Jesus the Nazarene, but he also refers to him as Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. Not exactly a death to boast about. But Jesus, Hebrews twelve two tells us endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified but also the angel says he has risen he is not here why is he not here why wasn't Jesus there waiting for them sitting there in the tomb waiting for the ladies to show up and I'll give you a very simple and I think theologically sound answer Because live people don't stay in tombs. (laughs) This is not the place where people who are alive hang out. Where are you going to be Friday night? Down in the graveyard. Just walking around. Why? The whole week's just been dead, you know. Can I come with you? Of course you can. You know, it's... (laughs) Live people don't stay in tombs. Colossians 1.18 tells us He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will will come to have first place in everything. And when He is first place in your life, gang, stop hanging around dead places and dead things. Too many of us believers hang out with dead people spend our time doing dead things, visiting dead places, tombs and cemeteries, places of immorality, lacking righteousness of any kind. It's death. Why do we want to go there when we are alive in the Spirit? And Jesus, who is now alive, is not waiting in the tomb. That's no place for someone who is alive. Now, of course, you know Jesus wasn't the first to be brought back to life. 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24, tell us the story of Elijah raising from the dead the widow's son, raised him to life, resurrection of a kind. John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44 tells us about Jesus raising from the dead Lazarus. And there are multiple stories in the Bible about this. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, Uh, Peter raises up Tabitha, Paul raises Eutychus. One of my favorite stories, the young man who fell out of the window because Paul was preaching too long, which is why we don't have anyone sitting in windows at the bridge. (laughs) But all of these, all of these examples, listen, they were all raised up into the same death they died in. In other words, yes, they were raised back to life, but back into their mortal bodies and every one of them would die again, which I don't think anyone would want. That's the downside of being raised from the dead. (laughs) i got to do this again? (laughs) All over? And every one of them would, except for Jesus. He's the first fruits. He is, as the Bible calls Him, the firstborn among the dead. In other words, true resurrection isn't just coming back to the old life, it's coming into the new eternal life. And when you are resurrected... When I am resurrected, it will not be back to the old body. It will be in the new glorified body, and it will be eternal. And Jesus is the first of many. He's not here. He has risen. Verse 7. But go, the angel says, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as He told you. He had told them that. Back in chapter 14, verse 28. Just a page earlier. He says, After I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So now the angel is just relaying that same message. Remember, he said he was going to go... Okay, so that's where you need to go. Because that's what He told you. Verse 7 is to me one of the most touching verses in Scripture. Because... It's another hint to us as to Mark's source material, which as I've shared with you before, I believe was Peter himself. And the angel says to the women, tell his disciples and, and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter. And when they would come back and relay what was said, the ladies, the women, come back to the eleven. They would tell the eleven, "Oh yeah, and Peter, he, he especially wanted you to be there. I don't know what Peter was thinking. You know, was Peter thinking, I betrayed him three times, no wonder he called my name. Make sure Peter's there. I'm busted, man. I don't think so. I think Peter is at the point in that weekend after the crucifixion, he's done. He has betrayed the one person in his life that he loved the most. And Peter needed to hear the specific mention of his name. Tell the disciples, and tell Peter, what, he said my name? Put your name there. Let your name settle into that place. Tell his disciples and Rick. You know? Tell his disciples and Don Elise. Tell his disciples and Les. Put your name there and realize that, well, I'll, I'll let you hear from Spurgeon on this one. If any of you have behaved worse to your master than the others, you are peculiarly called to Him now. I love that. For those who are the worst among us sinners, guess what? The betrayers, you are specifically being called to Jesus. The sinner, you are specifically being named by Jesus. Spurgeon says, You have grieved Him. And you have been grieving because you have grieved him. You've been brought to repentance after having slidden away from him, and now he seals your pardon by inviting you to himself by name. Tell his disciples and Peter. Yang, one of the biggest and most often whispered lies of Satan is this He's done with you, he's finished. He couldn't possibly want you back now. We hear that in the first person. He's done with me. Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with me. And that is Satan whispering it into your brain. That is an absolute lie. Because it's the Lord who says, tell the disciples and Peter. And He calls you by name and invites you back to Himself. Verse 8, so they went out. And they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now this doesn't mean that they didn't do what they were told. They said nothing to anyone. They just went home and that was it. No wonder some thought it ended after verse 8. (laughs) That's not what happens. And we know that because just a couple verses down, we see that they went to the apostles. We see they spoke what they were intending to speak. So... So what is Mark writing here? They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The implication in the language here is that they didn't discuss the matter among themselves. They didn't talk about it. They didn't square their stories. They didn't compare notes. When they left the tomb, they left in silence. And they went directly to the apostles, as the angel had said. And they didn't pause to make sure they got their story straight. Luke 24 verse 9 says they returned from the tomb and they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So they went out in amazed silence, but they went to make report to the disciples just as the angel had said. And the Gospel story does not end here. On that same day, Jesus appears three times and Mark recounts these for us.